You know, if you were a prophet sent to preach to a wicked and delusional people, the question is, how would you go about winning them back to God? How would you do that? How do you get a wicked people to come to their senses and repent? Put it this way, how do you provoke an arrogant, idolatrous, and delusional people to see their sin and yield to God in broken-hearted repentance and faith? How do you do that exactly? That is the question. I think it's an interesting question because when you look at the prophets, the answer is clear. There are two equal and alternative methods that you use to bring about repentance. Both are great options. Both are necessary. Both have been proven to be effective. You see, first, to awaken sinners to repent, you, without apology, reveal the wrath that awaits them in the future if they don't repent. On the other hand, equally valid, you unfold for them the glorious kingdom realities that they get to enjoy if they do. That's how you win a people to repentance. That's how you awaken a godless people to their own sin and their need for a savior. Those are the two equal ways to awaken a sinner from spiritual death. Here's what awaits you if you don't repent. Here's what you get to enjoy if you do. And you have to understand that both methods are equally good. Both are necessary, both are equally effective, and that just happens to be exactly what we see in Isaiah chapter 9. And yet when we get to chapter 9, what you need to know is that the issue on the table here is actually a little bit more complex. In fact, it's way more complex because what Isaiah has to do in chapter 9, get this now, is that he has to deal with the deep and scary sins of not just one, but two different kingdoms all at the same time. In other words, in chapter 9, he's not just talking to Judah, the southern kingdom. He's also talking simultaneously to Israel, the kingdom in the north. And you see, both were sinful, both were delusional, both were terrible, but in nuanced and particular ways. And what that required was a chapter, like chapter 9, for instance, that could deal in one shot with multiple terrible people in two different ways. And yet the thing about these people is that they were God's people. And he was not done with them, is not done with them. And so the question of chapter 9 is then, how do you kill not just two, but four birds with one stone? In other words, how do you bring about repentance, humility, trust, and hope? And not just one, but two apostate kingdoms. How do you crush the defiant? Humble the proud, encourage the faint-hearted, and help the weak in two different wicked kingdoms all at the same time. That is exactly what Isaiah does in chapter 9, which means we have our work cut out for us. And it also means that what Isaiah chapter 9 is, is a Leatherman. Do you remember Leathermans? Had one as a kid. 
Those multi-purpose tools where you have several different tools in one instrument all at the same time. You remember those? You get several knives. You get a screwdriver. You get a magnifying glass. You get a little fingernail cleaner. You get a file. You get needle nose pliers and wire strippers all in one instrument. And you see that is exactly how Isaiah chapter 9 operates. It is a multi-purpose tool of prophetic power and grace. You understand, this chapter is able in one shot to bring about repentance and humility and trust and hope in not just one, but two different groups of people all at the same time, which means even though this chapter was written 2,700 years before any of us were born, it speaks with profound relevance and clarity and power even to the particular issues that we face in our lives, even at this very moment. And you notice that the title of the sermon is, of course, the fist of fury, sacred lessons from the wrath and fury of God. And Fist of Fury, you understand, is not only a really terrible kung fu movie that looked like it was filmed in someone's basement, it is actually the very thing that Yahweh has clenched throughout the chapter. Look at verse 12. Chapter 9, verse 12, it says, His anger does not turn, and his fist is still stretched out. I know your Bible says hand, but the Hebrew didn't make a distinction between hand and fist. The context had to determine if it was a hand or if it was a fist, and the context definitely revealed that this is a fist of anger stretched out against his apostate people. Verse 17, his anger does not turn, and still his fist is stretched out. Verse 21, his anger does not turn, and still his fist is stretched out. Chapter 10, verse 4, his anger does not turn, and still his fist is stretched out. God is angry. God is displeased. God is furious with his people. And believe it or not, believe it or not, there are lessons to be learned in the anger and wrath and fury of God, sacred and surprising lessons that we desperately need for our lives. And so let's go to the text and let's hear the voice of the living God speaking to our souls. This morning, I want you to see five lessons, five sacred and surprising lessons from the wrath and fury of God. Five sacred and surprising lessons from the wrath and fury of God. And yet, and yet, before we learn those lessons, let's watch the oracle unfold. Let's begin first with the punishment for Israel's pride. The punishment for Israel's pride. Now, when I say Israel, you know what I mean, don't you? When I say Israel, I mean the northern part of a divided kingdom that called itself Israel. The southern part of the broken kingdom where Isaiah lived was called Judah. There's Israel and Judah, and they had broken apart and shattered some 200 years before this moment. And here's the thing about this. Although they were both Jews and lived in the same country on the same plot of land, were not even separated by so much as a barbed wire fence, they were not friends in the least, to put it mildly. Especially considering the fact that Israel in the north had teamed up with the godless nation of Syria and they had plans to invade the southern kingdom of Judah, kill the king of Judah, take over the entire country, join forces, and then go to war against Assyria in the east. That's called the Syro-Ephraimite War. 
And that war is exactly the geopolitical crisis that's looming in the background in chapters 7 through 12, which means, which means the issue for us in Isaiah 7 through 12 is who will you trust? Who can you trust? And so what does Yahweh do in chapter 7? But in his mercy, send Isaiah the prophet to the king of Judah, Ahaz, and he gives him a message. And the message is, Ahaz, despite what it seems on the surface, Yahweh is in control. The kings of the wicked north and their plans will come to nothing. Yahweh was ready to intervene for his people in a sovereign and supernatural way. And all Ahaz had to do was ask that's how it worked. God led his people through the leadership of the king. The problem is, the problem is, although Isaiah distinctly warned him not to do so, Ahaz would send a check to the king of Assyria and buy him off to pay for his protection. Which he did. King of Assyria did protect them. I mean, don't get me wrong, Assyria was going to wipe those two kings from the north who were opposing Judah. He was going to wipe them off the face of the planet anyway, whether Ahaz paid him to or not. But nevertheless, the gamble seemed to work. It seemed to be a really good idea. So, plot twist, when Assyria slaughtered the two armies of the north, hassling Judah, Ahaz was praised for his political genius. Isaiah was wrong. Ahaz was right. The gamble of a trusting the king of Assyria was a great idea after all. And yet, and yet, here is just one, one of the many reasons why Isaiah chapter 9 is so profound. You see, in this chapter, God reveals that the reason why Assyria would crush the northern kingdom of Israel was not because Ahaz was a clever political genius but because God had already ordained that he would crush them. God did that. God did that, not Ahaz. And the reason why God did crush Israel was because of their pride. Look at verses 8 through 10. Here's the beginning of the oracle. The Lord sends a word against Jacob, and it falls upon Israel. The people, all of them know that Ephraim and those who dwell in Samaria, that's Israel, that with pride and arrogance of heart, they say, the stones have fallen, but we will re rebuild with bricks. The sycamores were cut down, but we will replant with cedars. And there's the pride there in verse 9. There's the accusation of pride and, and arrogance of heart, the pride for which God would bring the hammer of Assyria and crush them. He would crush them. You notice there in verse 8, the beginning of the oracle, the Lord sends a word against Jacob. It falls upon Israel. That doesn't sound good, and it's not good. The evening news from the prophet Isaiah would not be pleasant to hear. But again, notice there in verse 9, the issue is framed around pride. Pride and arrogance of heart by the people of Israel. What did that pride look like? What did the pride sound like? Look again at verse 10. 
Stones have fallen. But we will rebuild with bricks. Sycamores are cut down. But we will replant with cedars. Why is that pride? Why is God angry over that? I mean, what is even the issue here? What is happening? Why is that arrogance and pride? Here is the issue. Listen very carefully. When news of Assyria's future destruction reached the nation of Israel, instead of fearing for their nation's future, guess what they did? They puffed out their chest and declared their self-sufficient power and resilience. Having received the word that they would be leveled to the ground by the Assyrian battalions, they cry out, not in broken-hearted repentance and devastation, but instead in arrogance and defiance. Let Assyria come. Let them do their worst. Send them. Even if they obliterate us, we're only going to come back bigger and better and stronger. And you see, that's what they mean by their little build back better comment of replacing bricks with stones and and replacing cedars instead of the sycamores. Bricks were better than stones. Cedars were better than sycamores. And so the point is, destroy us if you wish. We're only going to come back better and we're going to come back better than ever. And you see that right there. That's the pride. That's the pride that Yahweh hates. These people are completely deranged. You understand, Israel grossly underestimated the nation-crushing power of Assyria, and they grossly overestimated their power to come back and overcome nation-crushing power of Assyria. You don't recover from an Assyrian invasion. You go out of existence because of an Assyrian invasion. And you see, the real bone that God has to pick here with Israel is that this statement here in verse 10, this is defiance. This is rebellion. Why? Because get this, in chapter 8, verse 4, God said that Assyria would invade them and crush them and that they would not recover. And Israel's response to that is, oh yeah? Watch this. This is pitiful. This is pitiful and sad and deranged and delusional. I mean, what is little, brittle, Israel compared to the iron tanks of Assyria's armies. And what's more than that, what is Israel compared to the sovereign power and wrath of Yahweh? If he has decreed something will take place, it will come to pass. And no matter how much confidence you have in yourself, no matter how much, you, how much lies you tell yourself to convince yourself that you can overcome what he has decreed, it is folly. And so what we see here, what we see here, understand, is a glimpse of how much God hates man-centered, humanistic confidence in one's power and abilities. What God hates, you understand, is delusional, self-help, believe-in-yourself motivational slogans that people tell themselves, and what he loves is poverty of spirit. Weakness of heart, desperation in prayer, humility of soul. That's what God loves. So the question is, where do you fall this morning on that spectrum? 
Do you have man-centered, humanistic confidence in your own power and abilities? Or are you poor in spirit, weak in heart, desperate in prayer, and humble of soul? Because you remember that one of those things is blessed by God, one of those is opposed by God. And what's so brilliant about this chapter is we see here that with one punch, God gives two bloody noses, one to Judah in the south and one to Israel in the north. Judah gets humbled in a bloody nose because it was actually God's idea to send Assyria to crush the two kings from the north, not Judah's. And Israel's humiliation and their bloody nose comes in verses 11 and 12. Look what God says. In response to their pride, in response to their pride, Yahweh will increase the adversaries of Retzin. That's the king of Syria. He would increase him as an adversary. God would stir up their enemies. Syria from the east, the Philistines from the west, and they would devour Israel with gaping jaws. In all of this, it says, his anger will not turn and his fist will still be stretched out. But again, think about it. Israel was insane. Israel was, was delusional. They had both underestimated Assyria's power and had overestimated their ability to resist Assyria's power. And yet, and yet, get this, Yahweh loved them way, way too much to allow them to live in such unrestrained insanity and so to humble them and bring them their knees in repentance. Verse 11, God says he would increase their enemies against them. Like which ones? The Syrians from the east with whom they had previously partnered. The Philistines from the West, always a thorn in the side of the people of Israel. God would stir up the enemies against them. And they would devour them with gaping jaws. In other words, with mouths open wide and hungry to consume them, enemies would close in at Yahweh's decree from every side and invade them and crush them and destroy them. And that is exactly what they did. So you understand, the whole point of all of this was to help these deranged people see with high-def plasma screen clarity that they were great sinners who desperately needed a Savior. And it makes total sense then, doesn't it? This all of a sudden interprets all of uh, the pain and the pressures and the burdens and the trials that we experience in our lives, doesn't it? I mean, you know why those things are there, don't you? You know the reason for the pain. You know the reason for the pressure. You know the reason for the burdens. You know the reason for the trials. It is a loving act of God to humble us to wean us off of human ability and to cause us to cling to divine ability. You understand, the pain and pressure is in your life not because God is not sovereign, but precisely because He is. Those things are in your lives not because God doesn't love you, but precisely because He does. See, what they're all designed to do is to cause us to see the, the powerlessness of our own sufficiency and to cause us to see, to cause us to remember that we are but branches that desperately need the vine. 
Let me just ask you this morning, if you are in Christ here with us, if you are in Christ this morning, do you see that all pain, all burdens, all trials are loving gifts from the sovereign hand of God? Do you believe that this morning? And do you see that every single one of those things are all carefully calculated by God to help us see the inadequacy of all things human and to cause us to cling to the power of the divine? That's a sacred lesson. We cannot forget that. We must not forget that. And then notice there, notice the haunting refrain at the end of verse 12. Isaiah says, in all this, his anger will not turn, and his fist will still be stretched out. Meaning what? Meaning this fist of fury stretched out. It means that even after God sends all of these armies to invade and crush and destroy Israel, God's anger will not yet be appeased. There will still be more Anger left to burn, which brings us next to the retribution upon Israel's rulers. The retribution upon Israel's rulers, verses 13 through 17. And here Isaiah reveals that the sad saga of Israel is just going to get sadder and sadder and sadder. I mean, don't get me wrong, there will be a happy ending for the people of Israel. There will be one. Because of the covenants... And the clear, unanimous preaching of the prophets and the apostles, I am unwaveringly committed to a sovereign election of a future generation of Jews to salvation and the full reception of all the salvation blessings and covenant promises God ever made to the people of Israel. But to shatter their knees in repentance, you understand, to help them see their need for him, God was going to have to dig a little bit deeper, maybe a lot a bit deeper. Look at verses 13 through 15. You should render those verbs in the future tense. This is something still to happen. It says, this people will not return to the one who struck him, and they will not seek Yahweh of hosts. Thus, Yahweh will cut off from Israel the head and the tail and the branch and the reed in one day, the elder and the highly respected, they are the head, and the prophet who teaches falsehood, he is the tail. There's a lot going on there, but you can see, you can see at the very least that the issue here was leadership. Leadership was the issue, and by that I mean really corrupt and toxic leadership who, unless they were removed like the cancerous tumors that they were, the people of Israel were never going to repent and bow in submission to Yahweh. And notice where God begins in verse 13. Even though God would squeeze them in the vice of invading nations, look what he says. Verse 13, this people will not return to the one who struck them. And they will not seek after Yahweh. What is God predicting? What is he revealing? He's revealing that although the brutal invasions from the nations would almost send them into non-existence, these invasions would have no effect upon Israel. None. Baked in an oven of immorality and idolatry, the once moldable clay of Israel's heart had become like granite and steel. They wouldn't return to the one who struck them. 
They would not seek Yahweh of hosts, even though he had brought them literally to the point of extinction. And so Yahweh's method to win his people back would have to be a little more invasive. Again, at verses 14 and 15. Thus Yahweh will cut off from Israel the head and the tail, the branch and the reed all in one day. And then he names the leaders, the elders, those highly respected. They are the head, the prophet who teaches falsehood. He is the tail. And you know this, that, that sometimes the, to save a body, the arm or the leg has to be amputated. And in this case, to save the whole nation, the head and the tail would have to be amputated, meaning the leaders. And it's really interesting, you look at what, what Isaiah does there. He compares the leaders of Israel to both animals and plants all at the same time. God said he would remove in one day the head and the tail and the branch and the reed. And then he names the leaders. And who are the leaders? You notice there's the elders. Who were the elders? These were people who were supposed to care for people's souls. They were to make wise and godly and biblical decisions for their tribes and their clans. And God says, they're gone. And then those highly respected, aristocratic, upper-class people of society who had power and pull to influence the culture, God says, they're gone. And there's the prophets, the people who were supposed to preach and proclaim what God had spoken and revealed. They were to shepherd God's people with truth. And now the only prophets left were those who were teachers of lies. And because of that, God would chop them off the body of the people and feed them to the dogs of Assyria, that is. And if there's any application lurking here behind the scenes, you can totally see. And interesting that this would come up today, of all days, is that it really, really matters who you appoint as leaders over God's people. Doesn't it? God cares about that. We should care about that. Because get this, these leaders had such a grip upon the country, apparently, that as long as they were in place, Israel would never bow and yield in repentance. That's how far gone the northern kingdom was. These leaders were, it seems, beyond saving. They were total apostates, even wolves over the flock. And so the safest thing for the nation as a whole was to cut them off, which probably means they would be removed and die in exile. They absolutely had to go, and they had to go soon. Look at verse 16. Those who lead this people, lead them astray. And those who lead them are confused. That word confused literally has the idea of being Drunk. These people were inebriated with power and lust and greed and idolatry. There was not the slightest shred of allegiance left to Yahweh and his word. The glorious Deuteronomy 17 vision of a king who read the law of Yahweh every day of his life and led God's people in and with the truth that was gone. That had long disappeared like smoke in the wind. 
And here's the thing about chapter 9. Just in case the leaders of the southern kingdom began to pat themselves on the back in smug superiority, you remember that back in chapter 3, God gave them zero stars on Yelp for their leadership also. The slap to Israel's face was simultaneously a backhand to Judah. In chapter 3, verse 12, he said the exact same thing, the exact same words to the leadership of Judah. They were no different. They were no better. So this chapter is ingenious, isn't it? It's absolutely ingenious because it is a two-edged sword where every cut God makes on Israel to the north, he simultaneously makes to Judah in the south. And what this whole chapter begs for, what it screams for, what it cries out for is a king. A king to come and make things right. A righteous and glorious and sovereign king who will make all things be the way they ought to be, kind of like, exactly like the king described in verses 6 and 7. For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. And the dominion will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. As for the increase of his dominion into peace, there will be no end. Are you hearing this? On the throne of David and over his kingdom, he will establish it and he will uphold it with justice and righteousness from now and until eternity. The zeal of Yahweh of hosts will accomplish this. That is the king for whom we wait. He is the one who will make things right. And we know that this is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And yet, as we wait for his future kingdom to come to a planet near you, we must endure rulers that were not terribly different from the rulers that ruled in Israel. Who were so bad, by the way, that their godless corruption polluted even the orphans and the widows. Look at verse 17. This this surprised me. I had never seen this before in the prophets. Still talking about, this is in the context of the leaders, therefore the Lord will take no pleasure in their youth. And he, God, will not have compassion on their orphans or on their widows. Why? For all of them are godless and do evil, and every mouth is speaking literally in the Hebrew, stupidity. I know that sounds harsh, but do you see the issue? Do you see the point of the therefore at the beginning of the verse? The reason why God would take no pleasure in the youth and why he would have no compassion on the orphans and the widows is because they were just as wicked and godless as the leaders who led them. That is shocking. Isn't it? Because because typically do we not see in the prophets that it's the youth and the orphans and the widows that they are the victims of an unjust and godless society? Right? And yet here, here we see that even they were guilty. Even they were corrupt. Even they were guilty. Even they were godless. And this just goes to show, doesn't it? Being disadvantaged does not automatically curry favor with God, does it? Having some kind of victim status is not an inherent virtue that somehow makes holiness 
irrelevant. God does care for the weak and the needy and the helpless to be sure. But what God cares about even more than that, even more than that, is faith, repentance, godliness, and allegiance to his word. Be very careful, church. Be very careful of social justice teaching which under the guise of gentleness and concern for the marginalized is injecting a serpentine gospel into the church that cannot save but only condemn. Words like equity, diversity, and inclusion, fine words in and of themselves. The problem is, is that those words are being used as malware to smuggle in a worldview hostile to the gospel and absolutely incompatible with sound doctrine and what God has spoken in his word. It is stupidity. And speaking of stupidity, look what God says at the end of the verse. Every mouth, he says, is speaking stupidity. That's not because these people were idiots. Well, they were idiots and they were fools, but it's not because they were uneducated. It's because they were unregenerate. They were a secular people, you understand, without the slightest attempt to pretend to even care about Yahweh anymore. And there again follows the chilling refrain at the end of verse 17, his anger will not turn. In all this, his anger will not turn, and his fist will still be stretched out. In other words, even after the invasions, and even after God removes the godless leaders by violent means, there will still be a full tank of anger to be unleashed on the people. There's a lesson in that, and we'll see what that is, but that brings us next to the indignation for Israel's iniquity. The indignation for Israel's iniquity, verses 18 through 21. And you know what they say. You know that they say that the reason, the major reason for the Roman Empire crumbling to the ground was because of internal corruption and immorality. Ever hear that? That they got so lost and swept away by their own appetites and lust that they rotted away and decayed from the inside out. That they, because of their internal decay and greed and corruption and immorality, that they could, not, they could not hold up the breadth of their empire. And whether that's true of Rome or not, that was definitely true for Israel. And it's really interesting. God compares them to a vacant lot filled with weeds and sagebrush and Look what Yahweh describes is going to happen. Look at verses 18 and 19. For their wickedness burns like fire, and it will consume the thorn bushes and the weeds, and it will kindle among the thickets of the forest, and the ascent of their smoke will whirl up. By the fury of Yahweh of hosts, the land not was, but will be scorched. And the people will be like fuel for the fire, and no one will have compassion for his brother. Did you see it? There's actually two fires burning in that text. There is the fire of Israel as they burn in their sin, for their sin, and then there is the fire of Yahweh's wrath in response to their sin. Verse 18, people of Israel were people consumed in sin 
just absolutely consumed, engulfed in the flames of their lusts and their appetites, like an inferno that consumes a forest, the smoke of which you can see from miles and miles away. So Israel had become inflamed with the passing pleasures of sin, which is so sad, isn't it? Israel had one job, one job. All 613 commands in the Torah could be boiled down to one thing. To love Yahweh as your highest treasure. To love your fellow Israelite as yourself. And when you fail to do these things, you offer a sacrificial lamb in the temple with tears in your eyes. And instead of that, they gorge themselves on the fleeting pleasures of sin. Like kids playing with matches in a field of sagebrush, it wasn't long before the fire began to grow and spread out of control, and eventually they lost all sense of the holiness and majesty of the living God. Which is a frightening testimony to the power of sin, isn't it? How it doles the senses, blinds the eyes, poisons the mind. So let me just ask you this morning, not to accuse you, but simply to erase your awareness. The question is, are you playing with the matches of sin in the field of your life? What I mean is, are you tolerating those perceived little sins behind the scenes? I mean, a few matches here and there are easy enough to tolerate, easy enough to justify, but the problem is sin is the most unstable and flammable element in existence. You give it space and room to grow and breathe, and it's just a matter of time before it explodes out of control, and Israel is proof. In the science of sin, you understand no sin is little in God's eyes, and no sin stays little for very long. Because you understand sin by its very nature is incendiary. It is inflammatory. And without the fire dousing power of the word of God in our lives, it consumes and destroys and Israel is proof. And so what would Yahweh do but in the inferno of his wrath Bring the inferno of his wrath, not in the form of meteors from heaven, but invaders from, heaven, uh, from the nations. Look at verse 19. It says, by the fury of Yahweh of hosts, the nation, the land will be scorched. And the people will be like fuel for the fire. No one will have compassion for his brother. I, I think that has to refer ultimately to the invasion of Israel. By Assyria, when the the Assyrians would storm the land and burn the cities and level the country to the ground. The results of which, notice verses 19 through 21, would leave the country in chaos and famine and despair. Look at the text. No one will feel compassion for their neighbor. For they will slice, there's no object in in Hebrew there, but we we supply food. They They will slice the food that is in their right hand, but they will be hungry. They will consume what is in their left hand, but they will not be satisfied. Each shall devour the flesh of his own arm. Manasseh devours Ephraim. Ephraim devours Manasseh. Together they are against Judah. In all this, his anger will not turn, and his fist will still be stretched out. There's a lot of moving parts there, but you can totally tell what was about to happen to the northern kingdom was the complete self-destruction of the nation. 
You notice there at the verse, in verse 19, no one will feel compassion for their brother. Really, it's, it's that people would turn on each other without, without compassion. The, the, the people, Yahweh, would allow his people's rejection of him to lead to its most brutal and logical conclusions. Verse 20 could describe literal famine, or it could be the greedy, insatiable exploitation of one another for personal gain. Verse 20, using the image of cannibalism, talks about eating pe- people eating the flesh of their own arm. Scholars think that that word arm could be a reference to the family, so to eat the flesh of your own arm is to consume your own family for your own private lusts, to rob them. I mean, these people would be absolute savages. And get this, this would be the wrath of God upon them. This was God's wrath upon them. And then you see at the end of verse, in verse 21, that's civil war. Tribal warfare coming in the future. Manasseh and Ephraim, those are the two biggest tribes in the north. They essentially influenced and ran the entire country. And they would be engaged in bitter feuds and civil war. And the whole nation would be against Judah, their brothers in the south. This is an absolute train wreck. This is what was coming. And this was the wrath of God upon them. And you would think, okay, now the fist of fury will relent. And give them compassion, but no. No, at the end of verse 21, we see the truth. Even after all this, Isaiah says, his anger will not turn, and still his fist will be stretched out. And you would think, okay, well, that's it. That's it for the people of Israel. The divorce is final. God is moving on to the nations. The the nations will be his new bride. He is going to start a church. He's doing something different to them than them. And you would think that would be the case, except for the fact, except for the fact that the beginning of the chapter already predicted that the northern kingdom would be saved. Remember that? The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. That a child would be born, a son would be given, the dominion would be on his shoulders, and he would rule a kingdom. So you see what we have here in chapter 9, don't you? This is a Leatherman. This is a multi-purpose tool of power and grace. Here in this chapter, in the very same chapter, it's God's method to crush the defiant and humble the proud and encourage the faint-hearted and help the weak all at the same time. Because you understand the people of Israel, they still languish in apostasy and unbelief. But at the exact same time in this chapter, we have the unbelievable hope that one day a king will come and he will make things right in the end, because he will, he will do that. You believe that, right? Even though right now we're seeing our own culture coming apart at the seams, even their own, our own society is on the death throes of its own existence, even though our nation as we speak is flittering, flickering out of existence, We're seeing the wrath of God rain down upon us even as we speak. And I do not know how much longer America can last, but in the end, it doesn't really matter anyway because the glorious kingdom paradise ending remains profoundly unchanged. The king will come. 
Jesus Christ will have his day. He will come back and take the planet that is rightfully his, and he will make all things be the way they ought to be. And so the question is, the question is, in what category do you fit in even at this very moment? Where do you fit? Defiant, proud, faint-hearted, or do you feel weak? What is it right now that you need the most? Repentance, humility, trust, or hope? Because I'm arguing everything you could possibly need is found in this chapter, and in particular, the Messiah and King portrayed in verses 6 and 7 of this chapter. And so I'm calling you to go to him now in silent prayer and ask him to come through for you and give you exactly what you need. Which brings us very quickly, finally, to the captivity predicted for Israel's corruption. The captivity predicted for Israel's corruption. And you notice that the oracle actually extends into chapter 10. And Isaiah is not going to tell us anything about the people of Israel that we didn't already know, or at the very least, we will not be surprised by anything else that he has to say about them. He's still warning the northern kingdom in verses 1 through 4, but it's not unapplicable to the southern kingdom. Look what he says, verses 1 through 4. He says, woe to those, literally, who decree decrees of iniquity and who continually write unjust decisions in order to turn away justice from the poor, in order to take away the rights from the afflicted of my people, in order that the widows be their plunder and the orphans be their prey. What will you do in the day of vengeance, Israel? And where will you go from the storm? To whom shall you flee for help? And where shall you leave your wealth? Get this, there is nothing left for you but to crouch among the captives and to fall among the slain. In all of this, his anger will not turn and his fist will still be stretched out. You can see it there, he's talking again to the leaders. The unjust leaders of Israel, cruel, heartless, spiritually dead. You notice there in verse 1, he pronounces a woe upon them, which sounds a little, like, little bit like Shakespeare, I realize, but that is literally the most dreaded word you could ever hear come out of the mouth of a prophet because it meant that the wrath and curse of God was upon you. And you notice that what the leaders did, they decreed decrees of iniquity and they, they wrote unjust decisions, they, which means they deprived the poor and afflicted of justice. They stole and robbed from, from the orphans and the widows, which is crazy. No wonder the orphans and widows were so nasty and corrupt with leaders like that. And what they did was, you have to understand, there was wired into the Mosaic law beautiful decrees that would guarantee the thriving and prosperity of the poor. And yet they wrote amendments to those laws to redirect those funds into their own private bank accounts. And you think about the leaders here and you think, okay, well, what do we do with this? What do we do with leaders, godless and corrupt leaders who lived 2,700 years before I was ever born? What are we supposed to do with this? Don't be those kinds of leaders. Well, that's true. That is true, we should not be those kinds of leaders. I think that's obvious, but I think there's a deeper issue here that demands our sober reflection. I've said this before. And the issue is, is that the unraveling 
of a whole nation begins in the home, doesn't it? The unraveling of a nation begins in the home, and in particular, it begins with the fathers. You see, lurking beneath the godless brutality of the people of Israel was the failure of individuals and families to love Yahweh and make his words supreme and central in their hearts and in their homes. I mean, the chain reaction here is chilling. You can see it. The failure of fathers in Israel to lead their children and families and teach them the law of Yahweh led not just to godless children, but godless children who became godless adults, some of whom became godless leaders, and godless leaders to lead a godless people. Therefore, everybody was indicted, everybody was responsible, everybody was guilty. And although we are not Israel, and we are not, America is not God's chosen people, the principle here is powerful and profound, isn't it? We delay a little bit the destruction of our nation when we are busy with the work of making disciples. Which is to happen in the home and in the church and in your own soul being personally infatuated with God through his word. In verse 3, Yahweh asks a series of rhetorical questions designed to corner them and help them see how deserving they were of the severest retribution. Those questions are brutal and they're scary, and the point was not to try to answer those questions, but the point was that there was no answer they could make. There was nowhere to run. There was nowhere to hide. There was no one who could help them from the nightmare that was coming upon them. All of the wealth and treasure that they had amassed and stolen would be stripped and deposited in the first national bank of Assyria. And the reason why I say that is because exile was coming. Look at verse 4. God says, there's nothing left for you except to crouch among the captives and to fall among the slain. That's war language. That's invasion language. That's exile language. That's captivity language. And there would be no escape. And you would think, okay, well, after that comes the mercy. After the Assyrian exile, surely, surely, then the fist of anger, the fist of fury will give way to a hand of compassion. Surely God will be done after that. But such is not the case. Because even when Israel would be shackled in chains and taken away as slaves into Assyria, look at the end of verse 4. In all of this, his anger will not turn and his fist will still be stretched out. There were greater terrors still to come. There was still more wrath to pour out. And yet what we cannot forget, what we cannot forget is that the child would be born. The son would be given. Light and glory and joy would once again fill the land of Israel. The best is yet to come for them and for us. And so you see the insane genius of Isaiah 9 and 10, don't you? It's all carefully calculated to crush the defiant to humble the proud, to encourage the faint-hearted, to help the weak. The question is, which of those things do you need the most? 
Which of those things do you need? And the real question is, what are the sacred lessons to be learned from the wrath and fury of God? And there are five lessons. Five lessons to be learned from the fist of fury. And they're all in your notes there. We must tremble. We must marvel. We must wonder. We must repent. And we must pray. I'll walk through these very quickly, and then we're done. Lesson number one, we must tremble. We must tremble. Tremble that such a God sent a godless army to crush his own people. We must tremble that sin is real and ruins people's lives. And it has real painful consequences and that God is not afraid to unload those consequences upon his own people. We must tremble at the fearful possibilities of the human heart and our need to cling to him for his grace every single day through his word. We must tremble. Number two, we must marvel. We must marvel at the mercy of a God, get this, who waited century after century after century before finally squeezing his fist in fury. We must marvel at a God who is merciful and compassionate and slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. We must marvel at a God who would extend mercy to equally undeserving people like us and through his son save us from eternal woe and despair. We must marvel at this. Number three, we must wonder. We must wonder at the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the eternal Father, the Prince of Peace, who will make all things right in the end. We must stand in wonder just how, how it is that God will restore and save his apostate people Israel in the end. How will he do this? Most of whom this very day are secular, unbelieving, hostile towards Christ, and do not live in the land of Israel. We must stand in wonder that the greatest revival in history is still to come for the chosen seed of Israel's race. Number four, we must repent. We must repent of any lingering secret sins still lurking in your lives. You must repent of that. We must repent of any flippant attitudes that we might have towards sin because we are not, as Paul says, we are not under law but under grace. It's not how that works. We must repent for any arrogance or pride that we see in our lives just like God saw in his people Israel. And most of all, if you are still a stranger to the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, if you are blind and dead and damned and helpless and need to be born again, I call you to repent and yield to the Lord Jesus Christ in thirsty submission and faith. To bow down to wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace. What have you got to lose? Why do you keep saying tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow? Why not now? Why not make an end of your ugly sins this very moment? 
we must repent. And finally, number five, we must pray. We must pray that we would be a people infatuated with Jesus Christ as our highest treasure. We must pray that we would be a people with ever-increasing and consuming hunger and thirst for the feast and fountain of the Word of God. We must pray that we would be a people of lion-hearted courage and broken-hearted compassion to the lost people strategically placed by God in our lives. They are trapped in darkness. They don't want you to speak to them about this. Is that going to make a difference? didn't make a difference to God when he saved us. We must pray for Ukraine and our comrades who languish under invasion and war. We must pray for them that the elect would get saved, that the church would be built, that the gospel would be preached, that lives would be spared, and that Russia would be broken. We must cling to the hope and we must pray for them to cling to the hope that one day the dominion and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ will have no end. Finally, we must cling to the hope and pray for them to cling to the hope that one day all the Putins and Pings and Trudeaus of the world will be forced to bow beneath the shaking, quaking fist of fury of the Lord Jesus Christ when he takes his rightful seat on the throne of David where we will all in unison in that day declare worthy is O great king and sovereign emperor of the universe, who is man that we speak to you? What are people that we address you? And yet you have given us permission. Nay, you have demanded that we call out to you in and through your son. And so we come boldly to the throne of grace where we read in Hebrews 4, astonishingly, that there is grace to help in time of need. And every moment of our lives is the time of need, Lord. We are daily faced with our humanness, our fallenness, our corruption, the humanly incurable corruption of our own souls. And we ask you, we ask you to give us heightened awareness of our neediness. Would you give us heightened intensity in our dependence? Would you give us heightened and increased hunger and thirst for your word? Help us to be a people who cling to you and despair in all things human. And oh, Christ, oh, great king and sovereign emperor, we look to you the one who will one day sit on the throne of David, the one who will establish the throne of David and, and reign over his kingdom with justice and righteousness from now and until eternity. We long for that so badly. We can taste it. We long for that. And until that day, Lord, help us to persevere, to persevere in our prayers, to persevere in our preaching and proclamation, to persevere in our passion for your global cause. We are cripples, we are beggars, we are bankrupt, and so we look to you with great joy and anticipation what you will do always and only for the sake of your own glorious name. 